death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. So my name's Natalie and I'm a registered nurse. I've been a registered nurse for, oh, I think coming up to nearly 20 years. Um, the past two and a half to three years, I've worked for an organisation called Homeless Healthcare. Um, and within that role, I've been the street nurse. So that's a nurse um, who um, walks around the streets uh, in the city, primarily in the CBD, and provides primary care or nursing care um, to those who are experiencing homelessness. And I'm Trish. I would coin myself maybe as a lived experience consultant. I currently dwell in a community housing property and prior to that I was homeless with my daughter. Uh, Fortunately for me I was not street present because I had family and friends that I sort of couch surfed around and because I had a bit of a hat trick of um, disparity, I was ho- I was mentally unwell, a single parent and homeless, I uh, was put onto the priority listing. So it was six months back in 2003, so I got a property in 2004 and so I've been securely housed since then um, but have got into advocacy, systemic advocacy for housing, homelessness, alcohol and other drugs and mental health issues, which are all my personal lived or living experience. So although it was a long time ago now, if you think about it, mm. that you were homeless, how, what did that feel like? And explain the difference. You were talking about homelessness that is not on the streets, mm-hmm. but mentally, I suppose, it is still, you are still homeless. Firstly, I don't think I acknowledged that I was homeless until I started to work in the homelessness sector and in the tenancy um, advocate space because I had a roof over my head. So I was what um, the sector calls part of the invisible homelessness. Um, you know, I think uh, one in nine people who are homeless are street present. So I was one of the eight of those, you know, people who are, are invisible. And I think you just, I was just in survival mode. It wasn't, a, oh, I'm I'm homeless or, you know, this is hard or it's just you're just getting your needs met and making sure I've got food for my daughter and making sure that, I, you know, I've worked out if we're sleeping at a friend's or my uncle's or where, where we're sleeping that night. I'm making sure I've got enough money to get from, you know, from my uncle's, which was down south a bit, up to here because that's where all my service providers were, up close uh, here by in the Fremantle area is where I'm currently housed. And so it was survival mode. I don't think you, I I really was aware of how bad it was until I was through it. And the healing of that homelessness didn't really start until I was well into being secure in my housing. Natalie, in your work, working with homeless on the street uh, most of the time, is that how it starts, that, that perhaps they were invisible homeless like Trish was for a while, but they didn't get the, you know, they weren't able to secure some kind of housing 
uh, from social housing. And then that then goes on to being something much, much worse. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely the way it can begin for some people. Um, I mean, when you think of the the types of things that we see with a street homeless is, you know, mental health um, disorders, drug and alcohol misuse disorders, um, and it's something catastrophic that's happened in their life and um, they don't have any support. So they have no way of well, they don't have anyone in their lives to help them um, to navigate, you know, just the general um, things that we do in life that we take for granted, paying the rent, paying the bills, you know, getting food for yourself, shopping, those kinds of things. And things, I think, just fall apart and they lose their tenancy maybe because they haven't paid their rent and um, they don't have anyone supporting them. So mm-hmm. they find themselves, um, you know, that they've lost their, their tenancy and they're out on the street. Um, other people I've come across also, um, they just, they walk away from their home. Um, they can't manage those things, as you said, as I said. And, um, I think another thing also that I've come across, especially with Indigenous people, is we tend to house people, um, singularly in their own home. It'll be a one bedroom flat And that's just not how Indigenous families tend to want to live their life. They want to have their family and friends stay with them and um, that's just not acceptable when it comes to, you know, the rules and regulations of having a um, a state housing home. And that's not to mention the trauma that, like, precedes a lot of that, as well as the intersectionality of all of these things. I think one of the reasons why I didn't see that I was homeless was because the intersection of my mental health issues, my alcohol and other drug issues, like it was just in survival mode. So you're just trying to get the next need met. One of the first things I did in tenant advocacy was workshop how to how the community housing provider could help people keep their tenancies because, you know, if we're not paying our rent, if we're being a social nuisance or we're not looking after the property, those things will lead to, you know, being evicted or um, losing your tenancy. But a lot of the time you might not have those basic life skills because, you know, you haven't learnt how to budget your money, you haven't learnt how to look after a property, you haven't got those skills and then there's not necess- the system doesn't inherently have those support services in place until you're at crisis. One of the things I remember doing an interview in Homelessness Week for that ABC and someone said, oh, so why do you think, they asked me, why why did I get my property when I did? What was the, you know, the predicating factors? And I was like, well, I'm white, for starters, like, you know, that privilege that, and not to say that if I was, you know, Aboriginal, I wouldn't have got a property or, but it's it's probably much easier for a colonised system to house people who fit that mould, like I have a limit on how long my family can come to my house because otherwise they'll do my head in. <laughs> that is not, you know, that is not culturally what um, First Nations people, like, deal with. I remember one woman who I supported through one of the tent cities um, to find a property. Like, she had a really hard time managing the cultural obligation to allowing family to come visit, not having drinking in her home. She herself didn't drink, but then, you know, how to keep that, you know, her own space, her own space, but then the cultural obligations to have people there. It's not something that if you haven't got that actual lived experience expertise, we can't know what our needs, like what needs of others are. So I think that's a big lack in the um, 
system, actually. And how does health impact homelessness? You know, they could have the mental health or the um, alcohol and drug issues and that's what sort of gets them onto the street and that perpetuates it. So unless they've got the support, they then can't access or, you know, regain housing. Um, But then, you know, when they're on the street, then their health just further deteriorates. So it no longer is just the mental health, the AOD. You know, there are other things that happen. There's respiratory illnesses, chronic um, pain disorders, um, wounds, skin infections, lice infections, um, STIs. There's all of these different things. And then, of course, poor sleep, poor Mm -hmm. nutrition. um, That Mm -hmm. just leads to other um, comorbidities. And we often see in our homeless sector that our clients will have what we call multi-morbidity, so that's having um, more than two chronic long-term conditions. As a society, we're not very good at dealing with death and dying, even when it's within families who are stable and who have mm. homes. Uh, it's not something that we talk about, and definitely uh, the, the, the grief element mm. afterwards is something that we're not good at dealing with. Do you think that for people who are homeless that is a consideration at all or and 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 are people who are homeless who maybe pass away on the streets uh, because of all the things that you've mentioned Natalie do you think that that death is given the importance uh, that it should should receive um i my answer to that is no hmm. um sadly it's no and um last year we had um 44 deaths of street present people within the first nine months. Um, We had uh, 56 total for the year before. So we had, it felt like we had a lot of deaths all at once. And within a few weeks of each other, we had four Indigenous women pass away. And I remember feeling the strain of that. And they were all people that I had worked with and dealt with and known for, um, you know, many, many months or years. And I could see um, the chronic issues they had in their life. Um, They um, were really just, you know, barely surviving and barely getting by. And a part of me thinks that they probably knew that, that their life, you know, they were not going to have a long life, but they could not see their way through and their way out of homelessness, even with you know, the the basic support I could try to support them with, like getting them to their hospital appointments, tending to any wounds, providing medication. But unfortunately, their trauma background and um, the situation that they found themselves on the street. And these women were quite alienated even from other family members and um, other people on the street. They were very much just existing in a solitude type space and, and yeah, their bodies gave way and they passed away. And I think with some of the women um, there was, you know, there was a lot in the press and there was a lot in the media and there was a, you know, a sort of, you know, quite, quite a big uproar about how can this happen But my perspective is none of those people, family members and other people, were actually visible during the end of their life. So the months, weeks, 
towards the end of their life. And I mean, of course, you know, I was the street nurse three mornings a week. I wasn't there 24-7, but I could see their social isolation as well because of their chronic conditions. And, um, you know, these people die alone and and some people, there's nothing, they're not in the paper, nothing happens. Yeah. And it's only the fact that I was a street nurse, I knew everybody that I would ring and I would ring around and I'd, I'd call, maybe they'd have a public trustee or I'd call my contacts at Royal Perth and say, hey, have you had so-and-so come through your doors? And then I might be met with the news that they passed away. Um, and, you know, without me actually searching for them, um, I would not know and I don't think anybody would know. Is homelessness still something that as a society we're quite embarrassed about, do you think? I think the um, the response to the tent cities would say yes um, because it is something that, I mean, we look at where the street feeds happen in, like, the you know, in the city or in um, down Fremantle. We're not feeding people out in the open. They're pushed aside to the car parks on the side of the town and, you know, in, in conditions that are, you know, not you or I wouldn't want to eat out in a car park. And, like, so I do think we're... Embarrassed, and I think we've taken the humanity out of a, a group of people that our system has let down. Like this is the the result of iatrogenic trauma, where you know the system that is meant to support people is actually harming them. You know the the trauma of those deaths that Natalie was talking about. Like that's horrific. Like we we don't like you said we don't deal with death well, and and yet like anger is a part of the grief cycle. And yet when someone is angry on the streets, we cross the road. Like, that is not okay. You know, people are hurting and people are dying and we're just kind of not where it's, 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 I don't know, it's kind of a separation, isn't it, of that, that's not me, that will never happen to me. But what I think with COVID we've seen is that homelessness can happen to anybody. Like we've had an increase in people accessing supports. We've had an increase in people losing their mortgages. Like, you know, average working class people are now coming, you know, to the bottom of the red line and seeing that actually it's not individual factors alone that cause homelessness. They're systemic factors that we actually need to be advocating for. We need changes in policy. We need changes in accessibility to services so that people can stop dying. Like, you know, my advocacy in um, mental health, but specifically alcohol and other drug and homelessness is, is where my heart is because a lot of the time we see that the person has made choices to put themselves there when a lot of the time people are just like I was in survival mode and trying to survive and trying to get help. And when they don't get help, they die. Like 56 people, 44 people in 2021 dying on the streets. Like that is not okay. We are a wealthy country. We should not have the the homelessness um, issues that we have. And yet we do. And so we're in the middle of an election campaign I haven't seen homelessness as a massively important factor. I mean, what's your response to that, both of you? Uh, shame. <laughs> um, yeah, I think embarrassment. Like, I, I think, I don't think we have the ability as a society to listen to what people are saying that they need. Like the minister needs to 
be hearing from the people who are street present, from the people who are couch surfing, what they need, not just what the housing providers or the homelessness service providers think they need. Because a lot of the time you're not going to speak against the hand that's feeding you. You're not, you're not, we, we need true authentic voices in throughout all levels of system advocacy and I'm just not sure that we have that. Natalie, what do people say to you when you tell them the kind of work that you do? Um, Usually the reaction is is I don't think they really understand exactly what it is that I do. Um, And most people will say, um, I don't know how you do that. That must be really difficult. I don't know how you do that. And the most common question I get asked is, now, um, do you really think, you know, that they've made their choice to be that way and really they just need to get a job and get themselves off the street? I hear that a lot and it makes me so sad to hear that. And my comeback is generally um, I don't think anybody chooses to Mm. be homeless. It's not a choice. Um, Majority of the people that I see have always experienced a really significant trauma Mm. in their lifetime. They come from broken homes. There's abuse of all kinds and they have really, you know, lived a a really traumatic life. Um, They've not been taught many of the skills Mm. that, you know, we take for granted. They've not been raised in a loving home and they just don't have those skills to navigate life. Um, And then comes the, you know, alcohol and other drug addictions to try and, you know, mask the pain and keep the pain away. They're um, susceptible to many um, mental health issues, depression, anxiety. I always go back to it's it's not a choice Mm. Um, and it's always about what happened to these people and generally it's something that hasn't been, you know, a good start in life. And have you ever had people say to you, oh, look, I never give money on the street to somebody who's begging because they're just going to buy drugs or they're going to buy cannabis. Absolutely. To be fair, sometimes that could be what they do. Um, You know, uh, there's plenty of people who, um, you know, are are alcoholics on the street and it's actually a need. They are Mm. surviving and that is one of the, um, you know, one of the substances that they just cannot go without. It's actually a medical condition to stop. Um, But... These people are still surviving and they're surviving the best way they can and the only way they know how. And they don't have any other supports. They don't have anyone to turn to. And many of them may have been linked in and out of services throughout the years or, you know, their lifetime and they've not always had um, the best reception or response. I mean, whether that's true or, or not, but you know, I say do what you feel is right in your heart mm-hmm. and um, to keep an open mind. And I would really love people to be more trauma-informed, yeah. to have more of an understanding about these people and not to think of them as, you know, a dirty, smelly, homeless person that's drug-affected or, you know, it's crazy or shouting or screaming to think of them as a person because they are a person and um, they have a life and they have a life that's worth living. And I think that they're entitled to our respect. Mm. Um, Yeah. How do you move on from the grief that you must feel when you've built up a relationship with, you know, people like the women that you were talking about 
do you feel that you're freely able to grieve for them in a way that society kind of recognises and is able to empathise? It's a really good question. No, I don't feel that. I mean, I'm a nurse and I worked for many years in critical care. So, you know, death is something that I'm quite used to. Um, When you work in the hospital system, you have your patient in the bed, they're very sick. You know, your job for seven-hour shift is to keep them alive and provide their care and things like that. But you're supported by a whole team of people. Mm -hmm. And then when I check out, there's always someone else coming in. When I'm on the street and I have maybe um, taken someone's observations or I can see they've got a nasty wound, I've had a listen to their chest and it sounds like they've probably got pneumonia and there's something else going on and, you know, the heart rate is not the best and they will not let me call them an ambulance. They won't let me walk them to the hospital and I have to leave them in that space. There's no one coming in to take over from my shift um, to monitor all these people um, it, it, it is difficult and it is difficult to leave um, the work behind and I have struggled with that in the past. Um, also as a nurse and maybe it was a nurse of my era, we are just taught that they are a patient, um, they're not a family member. It's not my grief, it's not for me to grieve them and so I found it very hard on the street because you don't get to know patients when you work in a hospital setting. You might you know, no bits about them. And you might meet a family member that come in and say, oh, he used to be like this when he was young. But these people, I've had to work really hard to get to know them and to get them to trust me. Mm -hmm. So when I first meet them, a lot of the times I will get told to bugger off, go away, don't need your help, Um, you know, and um, people aren't always that warm and kind and, you know, they don't want my help. And you could think about it. It's like almost like walking into someone's lounge room and saying, hey, you know, I'm the nurse. Can I can I take your blood pressure? Can I do this? And they're like, you know, go away. Mm. And so it takes a long time, especially with untreated mental health issues. Lots of people with schizophrenia are on the street, delusions, paranoia, um, you know, the trauma aspect they don't know if they can trust me. Mm. And so that takes a lot of time. So I've invested a lot of time with these patients and um, and I've had some really great successes with people, got people housed, you know, got people accessing um, health care. We had a lady with breast cancer having a chemotherapy while she was living down in Queen's Park, um, you know, trying to navigate the health. I find it difficult to navigate the healthcare system mm. for them. Um, I don't know how they could ever try to conceivably do it on their own. You know, they don't have a mobile phone a lot of the time. If they have it, they'll have it for five minutes and then it's been stolen, lost, given away, traded. So, yes, do I find it hard when they pass away? I do. I really do. And I wonder whether I did enough. Um, I certainly know the system didn't do enough. Mm. I know our government hasn't done enough. And I'm ashamed to live in a wealthy country Mm. and to be paying, you know, being a taxpaying citizen myself and to know the huge amounts of waste that we spend in this country and we do not invest in our healthcare system. Mm. You, in order to get mental health treatment, you have to be wealthy and you have to be able to pay for it yourself or you have to, as Trish would know, you have to be in absolute crisis. Mm. You have to be threatening to take your own life. You probably have to have a small child with you Mm -hmm. so that, you know, you will be recognised in the system. 
because I don't know how many times I've taken people to ED, I've sat with them, I've pleaded for the triage nurse to take them in, I've gone in with them to the ED to make sure that they manage their behaviour and, you know, that they can be tolerable and accepted within the emergency department to find that as soon as I've left, you know, because my shift has ended and I've got to go pick up my kids from school, that they've been back out on the street again and they haven't received the attention that they deserved and that they're entitled to. Mm. So is the life of a homeless person, Trish, not as valuable? Every life is valuable. And I actually think the more, like, systemic intergenerational trauma that someone has experienced means that that life should be more valued. Like, I, I think that what we've done in our system as we've, you know, advanced, I don't even know if it's advanced, um, is we've, we've widened that gap. Like the question you asked before about, um, you know, people, uh, people's responses to giving money on um, the streets or uh, this, this gap that we seem to do with our human race is we other people because we see them as different. And I just think we need to like flip that. We need to be able to see that a person is a person and that our ways of coping in an ever-changing world are, are, are valid and okay. As someone who used to use alcohol and drugs to cope with not being able to cope in the world, um, I don't see that any different to someone who is a workaholic, who um, their their addiction is to make their life look good on the outside. That's kind of what I was doing. I was an early childhood teacher. I was teaching children how to manage their emotions and going and drinking myself into oblivion because I couldn't deal with my internal state. I was not taught how to deal with emotions. Like I was not taught how to deal with anger and hurt in a safe way. And we, as a, as a society, I don't think we... We do teach that. That's why we other people that display these emotions in ways that we don't think are appropriate. Like I think it's completely appropriate to get angry when someone has someone you love has died in unfortunate situations like, you know, on the streets. And from what I've heard from my colleagues who do this work who, you know, have been close to people who have passed away on the streets, it's losing a family member because, you you know, it's it's not a safe environment to be living on the streets. So you develop a community around you and then someone passes. Like that should, if that does not like bring us a feeling of rage, then there is something wrong with us. And I think that we need to flip that switch just to see that a person is a person, full stop, like looking for the similarities in that person, not the differences. Like we, we just, yeah, I think I, I, it makes me a little bit angry. <laughs> by a little bit, I mean a lot, <laughs> that, that we do see difference where we need to see similarities. And that's not to say that, you know, my experiences, I am one who was caught by the system. You know, my drug issues were hidden as mental health issues. I got caught up in the mental health system. I got a great community mental health nurse that supported me into a house, that supported me to, you know, go to Greylands with my daughter when she was first born because I was not able to like, like to parent well, she's now 18. Like I've got a beautiful relationship with her today, but that's because someone in the system cared, like someone like Natalie was, you know, who against all training said, no, I'm actually going to care for this person. I'm going to see that there's a human being in front of me. And another thing I 
like listening to Natalie speak, another thing that I think we really lack is support for the support. Like there's a lot of people who do a lot of good work in a system that is not set up to flexibly support someone where they are and with what they need right now. Like an alcoholic who will go through withdrawal and could die, like if they withdraw from alcohol, they need a drink right now. Like it might not be something that you or I would see that it's a need right now, but that is a need. Um, So I think that we need to become a bit more open-minded as a human race and actually see the person where they're at. Ask that question, what happened to you? Not what's wrong with you. Like we're human, that's what's wrong with us. (laughs) We share, you know, we share it all. We're, you know, the, the ebbs and the flows, the highs and the lows, we've all got that. But, but some people have been just slammed by a system that doesn't support them a lot more than others. Has COVID actually brought the, the case of homelessness more to the fore? You know, the media is often accused of kind of uh, just rushing to a crisis and then mm. going away as soon as that, mm. you know, it's no longer camera friendly. Has COVID allowed the homelessness issues, the death of people dying on the streets, those issues, has it allowed it to come to the fore? Uh, I think it did, and it has, um, particularly in the early, uh, you know, days of COVID. Was it April, May 2020? I think that was the first time where you could actually visibly see homelessness in the city because all of a sudden we had people, you know, very frightened and, um, you know, not so many people in the CBD. And so the CBD, we'd go to work and it was us and the homeless. Mm. And um, and it was, we have had this amazing story of a woman who um, was highly educated, well presented, well, well, reasonably well dressed. Um, and if it had not been for COVID, I would have never gone and approached her and asked her how she was going and, you know, where was she staying, you know, and those kinds of questions. And it turns out she'd been living down by the river for years, um, had untreated mental health issues, but had um, a unique way of surviving uh, homelessness. So she would she would sleep down by the river, but she'd spend most of her days in the library or um, she'd even visit with friends and have people come and meet her. And she was living like almost a normal life um, except for where she was sleeping. Mm-hmm. And um, she had a sister but um, not really... Um, any supports and lots of mistrust and um, sort of mental health issues to do with the, the system. So she was terrified of the system. But we ended up getting her housed and that was through COVID and actually being able to visibly see the homeless. And then I think from there, um, as, you know, the country, our state was sort of grappling with how we were going to deal with this pandemic and what life was going to be life, like, nobody really thought of how the homeless would navigate a pandemic and, you know, what, where, where would we put them to isolate? You know, we're talking about isolation and, and vaccines and the way the vaccine was rolled out and things like that. There was lots of things that were considered for the general population but not considered for those experiencing homelessness. And it was, you know, my, my colleagues at Homeless Healthcare who, I guess, shone a light on that shelter, WA uniting all of the big sort of players in the homelessness sector, um, you know, were trying very much to shine a light on that. And it, it took a long time for traction. You know, we only started really trying um, to vaccinate the homeless 
um, and getting support um, through the government to um, roll out the vaccine, um, delivering the vaccine to homeless people late last year. It, it just, it, it blows my mind. It really does. I mean, they could access it, you know, at the same time as anyone else, but they're not going to go into a centre. You know, who's going to follow up when they're going to need their third shot? They're not, mm. they're not, they don't have an app on their phone. Mm. You know, all of those things um, that just, you know, there was barrier after barrier um, for the homeless and it wasn't until we got some funding we were able to take the vaccines actually out onto the street and administer them um, to people. Everybody knows we need more housing, we need better health care, but it comes and it goes and no one ever really, really puts their money where their mouth is, I don't think, and it's certainly not getting any better. It's only getting worse. And we don't ask the right people either. Like, you know, money where your mouth is, like the, the intersect of that, like healthcare and housing, you know, a lot of the um, cohort of people who are street present and were street present around that time were high risk, you know, elder Aboriginal, you know, people on the streets. They're a high risk category and were told to isolate, but they had nowhere to isolate without the voices of those with lived experience. And we're not hearing their perspective on the issues that are at hand, then we are not going to find the right solutions and more people are going to die because we're, we're, you, know, you can't sit in an ivory tower and, you know, find solutions to a problem that you have no expertise in. So, you know, the, the effort that Natalie has to put in to build that relationship, like a politician doesn't have the time to build that relationship. You know, people in services, mental health, homelessness services, they are run off their feet. Some people would say that when you live in a regional or rural community, uh, the attitudes to homeless people um, is, are different. Do you have any experience of that at all? I do. Um, I grew up in a small town and we had a homeless guy um, who he lived up the river and I remember him being this, he was a really tall man and had a big bushy red beard and this wild red curly hair and his name was Bluey. And, um, yeah, I like. I remember my mum sort of saying, you know, he's, he's homeless, he lives in a shack or a humpy up the river and... Um, he was really well respected and loved within the town. Like he was a bit of an odd fellow type thing and but everybody knew he, who he was and he would go to the pub every day and he had his spot there. And I think, you know, if pe people saw him, they'd probably help him out with bits of food or whatever. But, um, he, he, yeah, he. I, I don't remember ever looking down on him or seeing anybody ever looked down upon him. He was just a man that chose to live um, a different way and he was a bushman and he had the big kind of a Cobra hat and mm. was always in the same clothes. But, yeah, it, it was different to the urbanised homelessness that, you know, that I now see. Mm. Um, so so what do you think that is about? We're much more atomised in a big urban setting. We kind of think about ourselves, not really thinking about, you know, the person next to us were just busy surviving. Yes. I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's because being in a small town, you know, everybody gets to speak to him and see him, so he becomes sort of known within a community. Whereas in the in the cities and I guess even some of the urban areas, because I am noticing the homelessness right. spreading, 
you know, um, throughout. I mean, it has been for a long time, but it's just more visible now. Um, You don't know that individual and they become, you know, a homeless person. And I never refer to anybody as a homeless person. They're someone who, a person who is experiencing Mm. homelessness Mm. at that time in their life. You know, they are not homeless. I think it's an interesting um, point what the media does to highlight homelessness. Like when we had the tent cities in Fremantle, for example, and it became a, a media issue or, you know, it, it got out into the media. I was a part of that and I remember the way that homelessness was portrayed um, in that setting. Now, I was down there almost every single day and the parts that were portrayed in media were not what it was like down there. It was a community. It was like, you know, the, the whole tent city was like functioning as a community, um, you know, with kind of in-house policing, I guess. So I, I think that... Um, yeah, media has got a lot, a big part to play, like um, Natalie's wording then of it's not a homeless person, it's a person experiencing homelessness. We need to see the humanity before we see the issue. And then we also need to acknowledge, I think, and this is where COVID was really helpful, we also need to acknowledge that it could happen to me. You know, the, the cascading effect of someone dying, like a partner dying and you lose your mortgage and, like, all of those um, issues, like, building on each other, that idea that it could happen to me or it's by some kind of grace that it hasn't happened to me rather than that person chooses that. Natalie, what happens when somebody dies on the street? So... Sadly, what happens is um, if the police haven't recognised them, like I've been called um, once but then I didn't end up having to go to identify somebody um, because they weren't quite sure. I've had patients who are in the middle of being resuscitated and I've just happened to have been in the hospital. I've been called in, you know, can you identify this person? Um, so generally, um, if they're passed away on the street, um, there'll be um, sometimes a coroner um, will need to sort of process the person and you know rule out any um, sort of issues with how they've passed away, um, and then they will notify the, um, the the person's guardian or family if there are any. Um, one of my patients who passed away. He was um, unconscious for a week before he passed and um, it took, I mean, I knew that he'd gone to hospital because I took him there and um, I rang his guardian. Um, So a lot of the people on the street have, I don't know if you've heard of a guardian or the public, so the Office of the Public Advocate. So they have an advocate that will, you know, kind of, takes control of their estate, you know, where they are to live and their healthcare. So generally the hospital will get in touch with them or sometimes I do to let them know that they're unwell and they're in hospital. Um, and then they will try and find family members. And sometimes I will give them information about what I've learned over the years. You know, I think their mother might live here or this is their name or this is a family member. Um, and, yeah, he died alone in, in hospital. Um, I did go to see him. I agonised over the idea of do I go in to say goodbye or 
Do I treat him like, you know, a patient who is, you know, I, I, I no longer, he's not within my care anymore. Um, but I decided as a human being to go and say goodbye to him because I didn't think there'd be anyone else that would say goodbye. And when I left him in hospital, he said to me, can you tell everyone I'm here? And no one went to visit him. Yeah, and then his guardian did let me know when the funeral was, where and when it was on, and I toyed with the idea of going to the funeral, but I made the decision not to do that because I had said goodbye already. Um, and, yeah, and sometimes people are buried without anybody um, at their graveside. Um, and I think I've known that more than any other way, that it's it's a death that just goes unmarked and unknown. Um, I certainly know that within the sector, so the drop-in centres, um, if the person has been a regular, say, at Trambi or Rua, they'll find out and they will sometimes, they, they might get, the, like in the case of Uniting, they might get their chaplain to come down to the centre and, you know, they'll say a prayer or say some words and um, sort of mark the person's life in that way. Um, and I know of other groups of people, if they've been sort of well-known within the homeless community, then they will, you know, have their own way of marking um, the person's life. But mostly what I notice is people get incredibly angry, mm. angry that, you know, why, um, you know, why has it happened again? You know, it's just, an, an, you know, another person let let down by the system um, and just going back to the COVID thing too, um, in the early days when we were offering the COVID vaccine, a lot of people would say to me, I don't need that. No one would care if I died anyway. So, yeah, that's the reality of life on the street. And that goes back to your earlier point about feeling valued and, and, and that a life, any life, should have the same value. Yeah. And I think we see, we saw with um, some of the deaths on the streets and the, um, the protests that happened after the passings, that there are people who care and there are people who ang are angry and, and there should be, like, you know, people in power listening to this and doing something. But I think that there's a shared maybe helplessness that, that comes with that of what can I do? So I think it's it's about making sure that the people who are able to do that care work, that frontline, you know, support work, are supported as well and and empowered to be able to, you know, fulfil that work. And then those that are in positions of power, their job is to listen and to act on that expertise that comes from the frontline people and the people who are experiencing homelessness to take the actions that needed that are needed. It's a little bit more than building houses. You know, there's a whole change in mindset that needs to happen. Does, does homelessness um, affect, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse people mm -hmm. in different ways? Yes, Fresh. yes. I um, was involved, I think, um, I can't remember what university, they're doing a, a, a study on the intersect of um, homelessness um, migration and and health issues and there's an, an added layer of complexity because obviously you, you you might not you might need an interpreter to be able to understand you've got a whole different cultural background that's coming with accessing services and if a, a nurse finds it hard to access and navigate a um you know a health system you add on that 
homeless like the homelessness service system add on that the you know the culturally linguistically diverse challenges that you have to access those services I think there is definitely a yeah an added layer of issues plus whatever traumas have have come with someone from a different country I mean I don't I don't think there would be a comparison between First Nations um, historic trauma and a culturally and linguistically diverse sort of trauma but like I think we need to be asking that question what happened to you you know the things that happened to me are going to be quite different because I'm um, I'm white and you know I've got an education well I have now since since I've had a home but you know like I there's there's different um, privileges and different disparities that come with people and I think we need to open our minds to actually try and understand what happened to people and yeah there's same with the LGBTQI community like there's a lot of uh, closed doors and hoops to jump through to access services that there's certain cohorts of people who are shut out a lot more than than what white privileged people are. Natalie in the work that you do is that something that's foremost or is that amongst the issues that you kind of like, you know, actively look for? Yes, definitely. And we do see um, quite a a large cross-section of different um, cultures and backgrounds and things on the street. So, of course, um, you know, lots of um, Aboriginal people on the street. Um, With those deaths that I mentioned um, in 2021, um, out of the 56 deaths, um, 32% of those deaths were um, Aboriginal or Torres Strait descent. You know, and when you think about that they represent 2% of our mm. total population, it is just a, an absolute travesty. But we have, I did have a client who was from Afghanistan um, and, we, in fact, we had, a few, we had a few people from Afghanistan who, um, of course, are, are always given a Red Cross caseworker when they um, come to the country as a refugee, but, you know, they still can fall through the cracks and... Um, because these services don't have proper um, outreach um, capabilities, um, yeah, they don't often, you know, track down or find these people who um, have become very mentally unwell um, and, uh, you know, living down in parks or by the river or what have you. So we um, had some success with him and getting him um, treated uh, as well as um, people who don't have Medicare. So with our New Zealand population, Um, if there's a certain um, year that they, if they arrived in Australia before, so I think 2010, then they get um, Medicare and um, um, Centrelink benefits and things, but um, others don't get that. So, you know, for these people, I mean, we never say no to anyone. We'll always treat um, people and provide medications um, out of our own cost to people without Medicare. I mean, I've been struck by just just listening to the news, you know, the war in Ukraine and these thousands of people who have been made homeless through no fault of their own. Mm. Um, and there is a public outcry and there, there, there is a conversation that's going on. I would give a spare room to a refugee from Ukraine. Mm. Do you think that that kind of thinking, which is very laudable, do you think it ever occurs to the general population to think about that, about the homeless at home? I think very few. I, I, I mean, I remember when I was young, 
and studying to be a nurse and I always wanted to work for Médecins Sans Frontières. I always imagined that I'd go to overseas and I'd go to Africa. And naively, for a very long time, I didn't know what was happening in my own backyard and it wasn't until I had children and I started doing um, a charity thing with them. It was Operation Christmas Child and my children would choose toys and we'd pack them up and we'd send them overseas. And then I started thinking there are so many children like that here Mm -hmm. that need a shoebox full of toys, you know, at Christmas. And um, and then when I, um, I don't know, I guess I started thinking about it more and I had a colleague that worked, oh, sorry, a friend from school who worked for homeless health care and when I started working in the area, that's when I really understood mm. um, how many people that there were just down the road mm. from me that were, you know, experiencing similar yeah. things. I think that um, speaks to that unwritten rule that we seem to have where you can get a job and get a house. I think we have this idea because we live in Australia, you have Centrelink, so you should be able to do that, whereas if there's a, you know, like catastrophic event like are happening in Ukraine, it's like we can see that that's a cause, whereas we don't see that colonisation is a cause of, you know, our, our streets being, f- like, full with Aboriginal people. We don't see that, you know, the, the capitalism or the, the the fight to get to the top of this invisible financial, you know, peak or whatever is a cause of why there is this, you know, um, gap between the haves and the have-nots. So I think we, you know, we and we, we're not really forced to critically think about what actually is going on there. We're just sort of taught that you work hard and you succeed. We don't look at the systemic issues that actually block people, um, you know, of certain cultures or certain... Um, cohorts of actually doing that we don't see systemic racism as a as a rule um but it's very evident once you start to look are there instances of families that you're treating on the streets um who who are there for a long time and i know we have a safety net and so therefore people who maybe have got children you know may be able to jump up the ladder to a, a house or whatever. But is, is that an issue, families on the streets? Thankfully, um, during my time on the streets, I haven't come across any families. Um, I don't know whether that's just sheer luck and, and I think definitely it's the area. Um, I think families would tend to be either mm. in, sadly, in their car, in a yeah. car park or down by the beach or shopping centre. They're not going to be in the CBD um, I have come across children, though, living in a squat um, and have had to notify authorities as a mandatory reporter. As far as hidden homelessness, I think it is probably safe to say that if you have your children and you are living on the uh, on the streets, you would hide because, you know, you're aware that there's mm-hmm. reporting that has to happen. You're aware that, you know, if you know that someone's going to have to report you to the Department of Child Protection you're going to hide because you don't want your children taken off you. They're probably the only reason. I know for me, like when I was having suicide ideation, my daughter was the only thing that was keeping me from progressing those thoughts. Um, You know, she'd already lost her dad. So I think we need to, yeah, bear in mind that that's another added layer of fear for someone on the streets and the judgment of, you know, not being a good enough parent and all of that kind of stuff that goes with it. 
women who live on the streets, I mean, what are the added implications in terms of their health? Um, I think for women it's um, all of those, I mean, men have them too, but, you know, we have to have our our pap smears and breast exams and um, all those kinds of things. Um, And a lot of that basic primary care is missed. So none of those things, you know, ever occur. It's, you know, they're in survival mode. They're just trying to get through each day. They're not too concerned about, you know, when they're going to have their, you know, total health checkup and things like that. Um, You know, safety risks um, are huge for women a lot of the time. You know, they're... You know, things happen to them on the street. They can't protect themselves. And generally they will try to partner up with somebody who may not be someone that, you know, they would ordinarily choose as a partner. Mm. Um, So there's all the issues um, and the traumas that go with that. We often hear about the homelessness crisis. Mm. But what would you say to people who do make the decisions about what needs to happen so that this affluent society doesn't have, you know, the the levels of homelessness that it does. I think they need to listen to people in within the sector, and I think they need to listen to people like Trish, who have a lived experience and have so much to offer and so much to share, and are so eloquent in the way that they do it. Um, I think they should listen to frontline workers, mm. um, such as myself. Um, I have taken a couple of politicians out on street outreach with me. Um, I've had various journalists come along for the ride, CEOs of companies and things. But as much as they're interested and it's just, I don't know what it takes to just really understand what it is for these people, to really understand and to put themselves, to have real empathy, to put themselves in these people's shoes and um, be able to, yeah, to to think of what it would be like to live a day in their life. I think we need to be honest with where we've got it wrong because we need to understand the depth of the problem before we find solutions that will meet the problem, like that will that will solve this this issue and we can't do that without authentically listening to frontline workers to the people who are experiencing you know homelessness to the people with the issues the family members of those that have passed we need to actually listen to uh, and value that expertise that comes from having a lived or living experience of homelessness because otherwise we're just going to be doing the same thing and expecting a a different result which is insanity (laughs) Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.